It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. We're continuing the discussion of state and local government services. I talk with a Kentucky State Court employee and an expert on school financing in today's episode of The Briefcase. Sarah from the left is in Washington, D.C. this week. It's Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I want to start by saying thank you so much to the wonderful community of listeners who stepped up to donate to Hurricane Harvey relief efforts. We were able to match $1,000 of your gifts, and we sent that money to the Red Cross to help out with the hurricane. It was just really moving to see the response to our call to action last week. So thank you so much for doing that. If you haven't listened, uh, check out our interview with Brandon Harvey on Sounds Good. We talk about nuance and empathy there. I'm really excited to share with you that we'll soon be appearing on Hellbent Podcast. So we'll be on their show on September 21st, and then they'll be joining us for an episode in October. I know we have quite a few people who listen to both podcasts, and if you haven't been introduced to Hellbent, um, I think you should check them out. They are very fiery and fun and well-informed. So it's a kind of a good balance to listen to both shows. The last thing I want to just bring to your attention is that we are still working toward our $3,000 monthly goal on Patreon so that we can produce another series about more nuanced living and also just share more content with you and continue to fund what we do here at Pantsu Politics. If you're already supporting us, thank you so much. It means so much to us. It especially touches my heart when we see people who support us increasing their donations. I can't tell you what it means to know that you value the work that we do to bring Pantsuit Politics to you two times a week. So thank you again. So on today's episode, I'm going to start out with a chat with Angie Ferguson. Angie is a dear friend of Sarah and mine from college, and she happens to work for the Kentucky State Court System. So she actually gave us the idea for doing an episode on public pensions, and we're really happy to kind of have live Friday feedback with Angie. And then after that conversation, I'll be talking with Zahava Stadler, 
who is an expert on school financing, and she'll tell you more about her credentials in that section. So I am here with Angie Ferguson, who is another uh, friend from college. Angie was in the same sorority as both Sarah and me and has been a listener of Pantsy Politics and in touch with us on social media, Facebook as the connector of all things and people. And we wanted to do some kind of live Friday feedback with Angie because she has a particularly personal and informed view on public pensions, especially in Kentucky. Thank you for being here, Angie. Thank you. It's a pleasure to speak with you. So can you tell everybody a little bit about your perspective and just, first of all, your role and so why you have the perspective that you have? And then I know you listened to the episode on Tuesday. We'd love to hear uh, your thoughts about it. Sure. Like Beth said, my name is Angie Ferguson. Um, I am a an employee of the Kentucky Court of Justice. Technically, I am a judicial secretary uh, in the Kenton Circuit Court. I have been an employee of the Court of Justice for the past 13 years. So um, in Kentucky, the magic number is 27 years uh, that you have to work for your pension. So I'm about halfway there. And I did listen to the episode on Tuesday. I thought you and Sarah did an excellent job really going through the different aspects of this problem and explaining why it's so complicated. It's just such a multifaceted problem that it at times feels impossible that we're going to get a resolution, but we're going to try. And Governor Bevin has certainly been very adamant that he is going to do this um, and that the legislators should really um, follow his lead. So. So I think it's so interesting to talk with you because of that 13-year mark in seniority. I mean, that's such an interesting place to be in the midst of these discussions about mostly new hires and people who are already in the retirement system. But here you are with more than a decade of experience and a a lot of uncertainty about what that means. Yeah, exactly. Um, This has been an ongoing conversation between my husband and I. Um, over the past week, week and a half, ever since um, Governor Bevin really sort of did a, a publicity push, um, wanting to get ahead of this before he calls a special session in the fall. And my husband and I are sort of having this conversation that I feel all public employees are probably having right now, and that is, what is our line in the sand? At what point do we say, you know, it's been fun, um, but... I just don't feel that my salary is enough and that the benefits are enough to keep me in public service anymore. And maybe I need to go look for something different in the private sector. And so that's really where I am right now. So it's constantly something that I'm thinking about. I love my job. I love um, what I do. I am a secretary, um, but really a lot of what my job consists of is providing for and making sure that people get their constitutional rights upheld, um, their right to an attorney, their right to remain silent, their right to a jury trial, all of those things I am responsible for. And I am happy to do it. I, like I said, I love my job. But at what point is it too much of a cost on my family? Um, and so that's a constant conversation that my husband and I are having. And sort of in preparation to speak with you, I have a lot of friends and a lot of family members. Um, something I didn't mention uh, before is that I am the daughter of two public school teachers. Um, my father is retired. My mother is still teaching third grade. And I've spoken to a lot of my friends and family members about this. And what I found is that a lot of my friends and family who are sort of early in their career as a public servant, um, I would say six, seven years or less, their attitude is sort of, well, of course we have to do this. You know, let's move to a 401k. That seems logical. And I just have sort of found across the board that's their attitude. When I speak to my family and friends who have more experience than me or they're already retired, I just get anger. I mean, it's just so much hurt and anger that the game is being changed on them so late in their career or after their career has ended. And so, um, I, and I feel kind of in the middle. <laughs> I, I understand that anger. And at the same time, I kind of feel like something's got to give here. And, and where do I fall into that? I'm still trying to figure out. So from what you've heard of the recommendations of the consulting firm that Governor Bevan hired, 
What are your thoughts? Do you see both pros and cons in the ideas that are on the table? Are there ideas that aren't on the table that you think should be? Yes, I, I, Sarah did a really good job of pointing out um, in your Tuesday episode that these recommendations, the company who provided these recommendations, did so under the directions of Governor Bevin. So there are no recommendations in here about tax reform of, of any kind. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I feel like that really colors their recommendation. But um, some of the recommendations, like increasing the retirement age, um, you know, I don't really have a problem with I have my 27 years in when I'm 50 years old. I certainly don't plan on retiring and staying home for when I'm 50. Um, so I, I plan on continuing to work, or I would like to. Um, I, I don't think that is a huge request. Now, some people may disagree with me, but I don't feel like that is too outside of the realm of, you know, compromise. But I, some of the things that I am concerned with are... Um, Basically, what these recommendations said or what the company said is their goal is to get the pension system to a place where people can retire and draw from a combination of a defined contribution plan, Social Security, and personal savings. And um, I don't remember if you talked about this on Tuesday, but as our pension system is set up currently, Large groups of people, like teachers, police officers, they do not pay into Social Security. And so if you were to go to college, get out of school, work 27 years in a public school, and then retire, you would never receive a Social Security check. You never paid into it. And so they're trying to change that. I don't have a problem with that. The problem is, what do we do with the people who never paid into Social Security? We can't unring that bell. Right. And so, you know, what's the solution to that? And then the other thing that they mentioned is personal savings. And, of course, that sounds, you know, all of, adding these three uh, things together, the defined contribution plan to security and personal savings, that all sounds logical. But when you work in public service, the sort of offset is you get these benefits because you're not making a lot of money. And nobody feels the pinch of stagnant wages like a court of justice employee. Um, I think that the current, like, base salary for a court of justice employee is somewhere around twenty-two, twenty-three $23,000 a year. When I started in 2004, the base salary, I believe, was $18,500 a year. Wow. And yeah, and unlike teachers or first responders, court of justice employees are—we don't have a union. Um, our salary is entirely based on the budget that we're given by the legislators, and so we often go four, five, six years without a salary increase. So when you're asking people to be responsible adults and put money aside, you're kind of assuming that there's got money to be put aside. aside. I mean, a lot of these are. A lot of these employees are single mothers um, and things like that who just don't have the extra income to put into an IRA or something like that. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot of issues that, that maybe are not being addressed sort of underneath these recommendations. Do you feel like public employees who are not represented by unions have a proper mechanism to be heard in these discussions? I don't, personally, I don't feel like, well, let me say this. Uh, we are, we as Court of Justice employees, um, the person that sort of represents us is the um, Chief Justice of the Kentucky Supreme Court. Uh, right now, it's currently Chief Justice John Minton, um, and he sort of goes to bat for us. Um, and so we know who is there talking to legislators, talking to the governor. Um, But do I have a union rep to go talk to? No. Um, Is Justice Mitten somebody that I know on a first-name basis or that I feel I can just every day email or call him? No. Um, But at the same time, when I receive emails from him that he sort of sends out to all Court of Justice employees, I feel it's clear that he knows our plight. So, um, you know, it's... 
it's not a union, um, but at the same time, I sort of feel that the person in charge understands where uh, we're coming from and, and sort of knows the history of, of our our branch of government um, to adequately represent us. What is one thing that you would want to leave our listeners with who are considering a similar issue that, you know, going through something similar to what Kentucky is going through? I don't know about leaving them with with something that they're going through, um, but I would say that um, my time in public service has been well spent. I don't feel that I have wasted my time. Um, I don't feel that I have wasted taxpayer money. I feel that taxpayers have gotten their their money's worth. Um, and I feel that they've gotten their money's worth with all of us, uh, teachers, police officers. Um, you know, it's one thing that, that doesn't get discussed is that 80 to, I would say, just in my own estimation, 80 to 90% of um, people covered under these pension plans in Kentucky are the people on the front lines of our heroin epidemic, police officers, firefighters, the court system, teachers. Um, we're all dealing with this and trying to stay focused on that and trying to stay focused on our pension problem and and sort of keep it all together. And um, I would say that we just have to keep moving forward. You just have to keep moving forward. Um, you know, I, I, as angry as I want to be about this problem and I want to blame someone, um, I just don't have time for it because... I just have to keep moving forward. There's there's another case that needs to be called. There's another order that needs to be written. There's another, you know, whatever down the pike, and, and I just have to keep moving with it. For teachers, there's another child coming in the classroom or what have you. So um, we're just, you know, taking it day by day and, and trying to move forward. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. 
And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, My name is Zahava Stadler. I'm an education policy professional. I focus on education finance policy, and I work for an organization called EdBuild. Ed like education, build like building the future. And we focus on education finance equity, um, making sure that all the educational resources get to the students that really need them. And I came to this work out of a passionate interest, not specifically in education, but just in equality, equality of opportunity, equality of outcomes for people, equality of chances for people. And I think that so much of how we make that happen is through the education system. So that's how I got to education policy. Before this job, I went to grad school. I got master's degrees in uh, education policy and public administration, so a really straight line there. And before that, I was working for a school support organization doing human capital work. So thinking about how teachers and principals are trained, certified, hired, recruited, compensated, evaluated, all that good stuff. But I'm really glad to be focusing on education finance now because to me, it really feels like the ground level of equity in our education system. So the origin of this discussion, I met Zahava at Vox Conversations and learned what she did. And I asked the question, if you could change one thing about our public schools, what would it be? Will you share that answer with the audience? And I think that'll be a good jumping off point for the rest of our discussion. Yeah, I answered that question by talking about the way we take for granted that schools should be connected to property taxes, that school funding should be connected to property taxes. I think there are a lot of things we take for granted in American public education that don't make sense. So, you know, you have school age kids, I think. I'm sure at some point you had that conversation about how good are the schools in this neighborhood? The notion that that's even a question we should ask, that schools should be different qualities, should have different levels of quality in different neighborhood, that's not a given. That's not true everywhere. Um, you know, can we afford a house in a, in a neighborhood with great schools? Why should those things be connected? Why shouldn't everybody have access to great schools? Why should that have to do with the prices of houses in your neighborhood? And the connection between those things creates this vicious cycle where the people that can afford a nicer home can afford to support their schools at a higher level, those schools become very high quality, that attracts wealthier people to the area, housing prices go up, and you have this vicious cycle of exclusion of low-income people from high-quality education. And there's no law of nature that says it has to be that way. There's nothing about schools that should inherently be connected to property taxes or neighborhood values, and the way we source our schools just starts from this totally illogical place. So that's definitely where I would start. And that kind of blew my mind when you said it, because you're right. I have never questioned the idea that I would choose the home I'm purchasing based on the school system in that area and that my property taxes would go toward my local school. So I would love to know, and I I know this is a bigger question than the way that I'm asking it, I would love to know how we start to solve that problem. I mean, if you could just start with a white sheet of paper, how would you fund schools? Well, I think that we have this tension between thinking that education is local um, and wanting schools to be resourced equitably, even though not every community has the same level of wealth. So thinking about how to cut through the knot between those two things is really where the challenge begins. Um, so let me, let me back up for a second and give you and your listeners maybe just like a 90-second primer on how school funding works now, what our current system is, because I think this is something that a lot of people don't have a good sense of. Like they know that there's property taxes for schools, but they don't maybe know that that's not all the money there is or that it really varies from place to place. Um, so let me, let me just give you like a basics. Um, so pretty much every state in the country has its own formula for resourcing schools. And the way they do that is they have this big equation of how much money should this school district, not the individual school, but the school district need, 
And different states have different ways of tallying that up. Maybe they have an amount of money per student. Maybe they have an amount of money per teacher and a certain number of students per teacher. Maybe they increase money for high-need populations like special education or English language learners. Maybe they do that through grants. Maybe they do that through money for students. Whatever it is, there's a big equation that the state writes in its law that says, here's how much we think a school district needs. But that's only step one. Step two is... Now, who bears the responsibility for raising that money? And every state has a way of splitting up the responsibility for that total amount between the local school district and the state government. So different states have different ways of doing this. Um, Maybe they'll say, we expect every school district to impose a certain property tax rate, you know, 2%, and whatever that 2% raises in your district We'll subtract that from your amount, assume that's covered locally, and give you the rest in state dollars. That's one way of doing it. That starts to diminish the connection between how wealthy your community is and how much money you have because the state will compensate. Is that clear? Yes. So another way of going about it might be not at all responsive to local community wealth. So for instance, in North Carolina, they just say the state's going to cover the cost of operations and actual education. And the local school district has to cover the cost of the physical plant. They got to keep the lights on. They got to keep the roof from leaking, all of that stuff. And however much money you have, we're not going to be concerned with that. It's just a matter of you have to take care of that at the local level and we'll give the rest at the state level. That's not a system that compensates for differences in local wealth. So that's step two. And that could really make a difference in terms of how equitable your school funding is. So how good is that formula that decides how much money you need? Is it realistic? Does it take into account what your kids really need in the classroom? How many difficulties they're likely to encounter in their learning? Are we providing resources for that? Step two, are we doing a good job of compensating for differences in whether or not you can raise that money in your community? And step three is, What other guardrails do we place around how much money comes into the system, right? So a local school district might be expected to impose that 2% property tax and raise that money, but the state doesn't necessarily say you can't do 3%, you can't do 4%, maybe you could do only 1% if you want. And the more local discretion that school district has, the more likely the total funding is to veer way away from the amount the state really thinks is necessary. So the, the fewer guardrails the state places on that amount, the more likely it is that you're bringing those inequities of local wealth back into the system. Because that school district that can afford to raise more money will do that over and above whatever that formula amount is that the state thinks you really need. So those three levels, right? How much does the state think you need? How good a job do they do of splitting up the responsibility in a way that responds to what your local community can afford? And then do they place guardrails that keep wealthy communities from raising way more or poor communities from choosing to raise less to, so that they don't overburden their taxpayers? Those three layers of school funding policy, each one has huge implications for the equity of school funding. So let's stay with the status quo for a second then and talk about that formula. Mm-hmm. Is that often a per student kind of formula? Or can you talk a little bit about different approaches that states take to establishing that formula? Sure. Um, So I'm going to do a quick plug for a feature that we have on our website because I work pretty hard on it. So I think it's a good one. Um, So like I said, I work for EdBuild and I'll get into this in a second. So I'm not just telling you to go look it up, but our website uh, that gives details on all 50 states formulas like this is funded. .edbuild.org. So there's a whole database of these that we put together that tells you how each state calculates. But let me just give you a couple of examples. So we divide, EdBuild divides the formulas into a couple of categories. Resource-based formulas are what I think of as the old school way of funding schools. Um, States that still do this all over the country. They're a minority, but there are plenty of them, you know, everywhere from Delaware to Alabama to Washington State. Um, And the way they do it is they say, what's a classroom? Okay, a classroom is, say, 20 kids and a teacher. Maybe we want um, to think about fewer kids because maybe sometimes it's a small class for special ed. So we're going to assume 14 kids per teacher, We're going to count up the number of kids you have in your class, in your school district, divide it by 14, and that's the number of T 
teachers we're going to fund and we're going to give you money for those teachers salaries and benefits now how many textbooks do you need for the number of kids you have how much money do you need for school bus transportation we'll give you amount of money per mile per kid um what about uh more modern concerns a technology allocation um are we providing specific funding for the equipment you need in your career in tech school? Um, maybe you have, you know, an auto shop program and that requires a lot of equipment and tools. So a resource-based formula will look at the number of kids in the district and the programs that the district is administering and tally up the shopping list. And that's how they'll determine how much money the district needs. So that's type number one. Type number two, and this is a little more common and a little more modern, is what we call a student-based formula. Kentucky has one of these. Um, and it's called the SEEK formula, which I wish I could remember what it stands for. It's something like, you know, supplying excellent education in Kentucky or something like that. <laughs> and um, so the student-based formula basically estimates how much money per child you need. So not per classroom, but per kid. And they say, let's say, we think that your average student with no special needs or disadvantages needs $5,000. That's a roughly middling amount for the country. And then they'll say, okay, but not every student has no special needs or disadvantages, so we're going to give you $5,000 per kid, but an extra 20% of that if the student has a low-grade disability, or an extra 200% of that if they have a profound disability, or an extra 60% if they're an English language learner, or an extra 50% if they're a low-income student. So this is usually called a weighted student funding formula because each of those extra percents is like a weight or a multiplier applied to that initial per pupil amount. I know this is super in the weeds, sorry listeners, but I think this is really uh, useful to know. So the student-based formula, instead of starting with the classroom as the unit of concern, it starts with the kid as the unit of concern. And then that gives the school district more flexibility so if they say, well, this is the amount of money we have per student, and we're going to use it maybe for a conventional notion of a teacher in front of 23 children, or maybe we're going to use it for a teacher and an aide for 35 kids and a station rotation model where we're doing different things at different parts of the classroom, or maybe we'll uh, shrink down our class size and use a little bit less of that money for materials, and we'll be a little bit more uh, flexible about the resources we need. So a student-based formula tends to be more flexible in how the district serves its community. So those are the two big ways. In those student-based formulas, is there consideration for students with special needs, whether they've been identified as gifted and talented or they have physical needs that need to be addressed? Yeah, so usually that happens through those weights, those extra percentages. Um, but common okay. things that you might see extra money for in a student-based formula um, sometimes grade level, like in some places you have more money in K to three because they're doing intensive okay. literacy or smaller class sizes or maybe in high school to cover career programming and things like that. Um, you will usually see extra money for poverty. So students that are economically disadvantaged come into the classroom with all kinds of extra challenges, um, whether it's uh, lower levels of kindergarten readiness or lower likelihood that they have a college-educated parent at home or more likelihood that they experience uh, nutrition deficits that makes it harder to concentrate, all kinds of things that um, a district might be trying to address with that extra funding. So most states that use a student-based formula will have extra money for students that are economically disadvantaged. Um, English language learners, almost every state has some, some extra money for English language learners. There are about six states that don't, but most do. Definitely special education. There are very different ways of funding for special education, but uh, the simplest, cleanest way is to provide an extra percentage of funding for those special ed students, often differentiated based on what kind of disability or what kind of services they receive. Um, a lot of states do have funding for gifted students. Uh, sometimes you'll have extra funding specifically per each student enrolled in a vocational program. Um, and a lot of states actually have money, I, I think a lot of people don't know this, for sparse communities. So um, rural communities or communities where there's not a lot of kids in the school um, often struggle with Difficulties just attracting teachers, economies of scale, they, you know, they need to bus kids over really long distances. So a lot of states will provide extra money for each student enrolled in a sparse district as well. So 
we're talking about state funding and then the local component based on that state formula. Can you give people, and I know this is complicated too, but can you give people a sense of what we're talking about when we discuss federal education programs? Sure. Um, The short answer is not much. I think people have the sense that the federal government provides a lot of money for education. And certainly, you know, when you're counting up the millions, it's a lot of money when I look at my bank account. But in terms of the amount of money that it actually, um, the percentage of total education funding that it constitutes, it's not a lot. So um, last year, when you looked at all of the public education dollars in the U.S., the states provided about 45%. Um, the localities provided about 46%, and only that last little bit was federal. That is such important context that I think would shock a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is really important. So something that a lot of people don't know, a lot of federal funding comes in the form of, maybe people have heard the term Title I, that's extra money for uh, economically disadvantaged students. There's also money for special education, especially through Medicaid. Um, When people talk about cuts to Medicaid, one thing they don't realize they're talking about is cuts to special education services for students in schools. Um, Medicaid covers a lot of assistive services for for Medicaid-eligible students. Then there's money like the National School Lunch Program, so matching funds for um, students that uh, their families are below 185% of the poverty line are eligible for reduced-price lunch um, or below 130% are eligible for free lunch, and the federal government provides some matching money. And then there's grant funding. So the federal government... One of the big things the uh, Trump budget wanted to zero out this year was called Title II. That's professional development money for teachers and educators. Um, the federal government provides some grants for bilingual education, voc ed, but all of that totals, depending on the year, between, say, 8 and 10% of education funding nationally. So if you live in a really low-income district and a lot of your kids are getting that economically disadvantaged funding, maybe that federal money looms larger for you in that individual district. But overall, it's really not a lot of our public education dollars. And the other important thing to know about federal money, and this is why I didn't even mention it before, is that legally, here's the technical term, those federal dollars must supplement, not supplant, state and local money. So that's a real (laughs) technical, there are like pages and pages of regulatory guidance about what this actually means. But basically what it means is the federal money that you get has to be icing on the cake. You can't use it to substitute for state and local money. So when the state makes its policy about how much money a district needs, how much of that money is going to be picked up by the state versus the local level, they're not even allowed to take into account those federal dollars. It has to be icing on the cake. Okay, so we have the state formula. We have the relationship between the state and the locality to kind of fill out that formula. And then we have this tiny bit of federal dollars layering into that. So can you talk about, that's our status quo, what would a better system look like? Well, there's no inherent reason that just because you want your schools to be connected to the community, that the school funding has to be tied to community wealth. And here's a way to get around that. The first way to get around that is you could have an entirely state-funded education system. This isn't crazy. It is totally possible, um, and other countries don't really know why we do it this way. It is totally possible for you to just levy your property taxes at the state level, pool all that money, pass it out to districts in accordance with the state formula, and ignore local wealth entirely because all that money is getting pooled, just like state income tax. It's not like, well... You paid this much in income tax because you had a lower income, so that means you're going to get less in the way of state-funded services this year. Maybe your water won't be as clean. Um, You know, that's not really how we think about doing state services. And so there's no reason public education couldn't be the same way. Ultimately, you know, I talked about how student-based funding is very flexible. That money goes back to the district per student, and then the district decides how to use that money to best serve its specific local community. That's true even if that money is collected and handed out by the state. And so there's no reason we can't do this. And there are different states that put a bigger emphasis on state funding uh, and less on local funding. I would say the, the 
biggest player here is Vermont, actually. They have a pretty comprehensively state-funded system, though there are some wiggle room around the edges. Um, the Supreme Court in Washington state has a ruling that the legislature's been struggling to implement for the last few years called the McClear ruling, where they actually said that the Washington state constitution requires the state to cover all basic education costs itself without any local property taxes. So they've just passed a law in Washington that says any local taxes are just for enrichment. All the fundamentals have to be covered by the state. There are better and worse sort of, you know, I mentioned the guardrails you can place around local discretion and how much extra they can raise and whether that creates different inequities. But fundamentally, you could bring all of education funding up to the state level without getting in the way of local decision making at all. So I wonder, as you model that out, I guess it just depends on the state as far as the net effect for people's property taxes. Some probably go up, some go down. Is that the vast over overly simplified result? I mean, I think any change you make to school funding, whether it's local or state, means that some people's property taxes are going to go up and some people's property taxes are going to go down. But ultimately, if you have a community with really high value homes, they're already able to raise a lot of revenue with fairly low tax rates. Um, and the way things are now, if a low wealth community wants to raise that same amount of revenue for its schools, because every parent wants to do the best for their kid, then they're having already to tax themselves much higher than the wealthy community, right? They're paying a much higher tax rate because it's a bigger percentage of a smaller number. And so mm-hmm. ultimately... I think if some people's taxes go up and some go down, that's inevitable in any change. But it probably means that people are more likely to be paying the same tax rate across the board or pay tax rates that are more commensurate with their ability to pay. So chances are you're moving in a more equitable direction, even though it will mean that some people's tax bills will be a higher percentage. So at the outset of our discussion, you said that your interest is a more equitable system. And you talked about equality of opportunity and of outcome. And I would love to hear you discuss what that means in the context of education. Sarah and I talk a lot about how schools are such a challenge because what success looks like individual by individual is so different. Um, So I, I would just love to hear you expand on kind of how you know that a system has been successful. Well, I think a lot of times our political debates that talk about equality of opportunity versus equality of outcomes are about adults. We're often talking about social safety net programs for adults or college access or all kinds of things. When your four-year-old enters kindergarten, do they have to earn the right to be there? I mean, this is the beginning, right? That opportunity is what gives them the chance at that outcome. So to me, it feels like this, this tension... Um, between those philosophical ideas vanishes when you're looking at a four-year-old entering school. And ultimately, kids come in with different kindergarten readiness. I mean, you know, we we keep moving the the goalposts backwards. States are talking about pre-K. People are talking about, um, you know, they're talking about the opportunity for children based on your access to prenatal visits when you're expecting that child, right? We keep going all the way back because we Mm -hmm. recognize that root, root causes matter. And education is the root cause of opportunity in this country. And so if you are not equitable at the start, if kids enter schools that aren't fairly resourced, if if some kids enter bright, colorful kindergarten classrooms with enriching toys and really well-trained early childhood educators, and some kids enter kindergarten classrooms that are in really poor repair with that are staffed mostly by unlicensed paraprofessionals who, you know, don't don't have great facilities and don't have great equipment. Ultimately, that inequality of opportunity at the very beginning is going to mean unequal outcomes for those kids. And so it's really just about support. Um, it's really just about our public education system isn't about, shouldn't be about judging how much effort you're putting in as a kid it should be about supporting you so that that outcome is commensurate with with a great opportunity. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. 
They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Do you have any anecdotes that would help people understand how significant the disparity can be within a a relatively small geographic region? Well, there are so many spots around the country where there are really socioeconomically segregated school districts. And by that, I mean you have one school district with um, a really low-income student population. We're talking about real poverty. And right next door is a really wealthy school district. Um, and we've collected some of these examples on our website. So if you go to edbuild.org and you, you look at our content, I think you can see some of those examples. But just to pull out a couple of them, um, in parts of the country where there has been um, a decline because of the reduction in manufacturing jobs, so what we sometimes call you know Rust Belt areas, um, Western Pennsylvania or parts of Ohio, you'll often see a lot of places that have had population decline. Um, so Dayton, Ohio, for instance, um, is has lost a lot of its population. What's left are are you know a lot of people, a lot of families that are more struggling. Um, that's become a much higher poverty school district. Um, Last year, they had a poverty rate of uh, over 47%. Um, and that's really high. Because the federal, when we say poverty rate, I'm talking about the federal poverty level, which is really low. You're talking about you know $25,000 for a family of four. And almost half of the school-age kids in that school district 
come from a family that's that's living on that amount of money so that's that's really struggling right next door you have um these tiny school districts that have sort of pulled themselves away drawn the line around a really wealthy community um one's called uh, oakwood one's called beaver creek so oakwood by example literally right next door to dayton has a poverty rate of under seven percent compared with 47 percent in dayton these are neighbors beaver creek also has a poverty rate of under seven percent like you you would just walk down the street and you'd be in a different world for those kids um the the difference in how much those houses cost is crazy so in beaver creek the median home costs over $180,000 in Dayton it's less than 70. That's the tax base that's feeding into these schools and think about how much needier are the children in the schools in that high poverty community. They're coming in with those pre-kindergarten challenges that we talked about. They need that extra support and instead they're walking into a school district that's already dealing with a struggling tax base, difficulty supplying their needs. So that divide is huge. I want to ask you to help us understand what you are up against in trying to educate people about these problems and make changes. So you talked at the beginning about how we really take the current structure for school funding for granted. For people who don't take it for granted, who understand this area, what arguments do you meet against making change? Well, one problem isn't so much an argument it's just i think the problem that you know maybe some of your listeners have been listening to this very technical conversation i think i give a lot of credit to pantsuit politics listeners i know they're here for the for the tough stuff but i think there are a lot of people out there um that struggle just to absorb all this arcana right it's it's a it's not a sexy yeah, just hang in with it yeah and mm-hmm. it's just you know it's a lot of numbers it's a lot of math people might not be there for it i think this isn't an issue that really captures the grassroots unless you're talking about a really vivid example so about a couple of years ago there were some really vivid newspaper articles about how schools in detroit were falling apart there was mold on the walls the floors were bubbling up they were talking about their struggles with uh, school funding and how that manifested in the building i think those pictures got a lot of people fired up but then if i said so let's talk about the michigan education funding formula and why that might be happening i think a lot of people just start to glaze over and i think that's a challenge Um, and so keeping people fired up and engaged is tough Second challenge is that this is a 50-state issue. You know, I said before that usually it's less than 10%, between 8 and 10% in any given year of school dollars are federal. This is not something you can solve in one fell swoop with a big, high-profile congressional bill and a signing ceremony in the Rose Garden. This is something that, you know... You got to do the work state by state. And Ed Bill does some work in different states, helping people on the ground improve their education funding policies. And so that's just a really slow process. Third, as you said before, somebody's taxes are going to go up. If you're going to make this more equitable and if you're going to start pooling that money at the state level and you're going to try and send the money mostly to schools based on who needs it and not who has it. You know, and if you're going to stop rewarding money with more money, which is a lot of what our system does now, somebody's going to be worse off and that somebody is probably going to be someone who's already upper income, a high wealth community that has a lot of political clout. So that's a real practical problem when you're trying to pass a bill. Ultimately, if you're trying to fix this problem, you're coming up against pretty entrenched interests. But in terms of philosophical arguments, I think a lot of people here what I'm saying about shifting education funding up to the state level or doing more at the state level to equalize for differences in local tax bases, and they think it's a state takeover of education, education should be local, education should be, you know, neighborhood schools and local control. You hear the phrase local control a lot in this conversation. People think that, you know, the public school is often the center of the community, and people think that equalizing funding by the state is going to take away some of that control. I think that's usually not true. You know, I think that the state can hand that money back to districts to use in a way that's most responsive to their students. But it is true that it stops communities from saying, 
well, we can afford it and I'm, I want my kids' high school to have an Olympic-sized pool. Or we can afford it and I want them to have a, an astronomy tower, you know? Um, if what your primary concern is is making sure that all the education funding is pooled and goes back to those schools uh, to cover the, the needs of those students, then maybe some communities will lose their, their extras um, or will have to, you know, go outside the system for that. So that is a challenge for some people. Um, but I think ultimately, all kids are our kids. You know, people think, well, well, my kids need. Well, if your kids need, then why don't their kids need? I mean, ultimately, public policy needs to be about providing for all of us and all of our children. And I, I'm sympathetic that communities all want to do the best for their kids. But I would hope that as, you know, New Jerseyans or Kentuckians or Americans, we all want to do the best for all our kids. And that's something that we do by providing, providing these resources in as fair and equitable a way as possible. Yeah, it kind of gets to the belief that when our neighbors are better off, we are all better off. And I, I think that's kind of at the, the core of what we're talking about. So if you are listening to this conversation and do feel fired up about it or inspired, where can people go? You've, you've mentioned EdBuild's website, and we'll link that in the show notes. Um, what, what kind of call to action do you have for people who want to get more engaged on this topic? Well, I think, first of all, try and get to know your state's policy. Try and understand it. I mean, you know, I mentioned that we have a feature on all 50 states' education funding formulas. It's pretty easy for you to go and find out, well, my state doesn't have any funding for English language learners, or, uh, you know, my state is only providing an extra 5% for kids in poverty. That doesn't seem like enough. Um, so that's something that you can find out about. This is a matter for your state legislature. Um, and so I think state policy maybe isn't where people's focus is these days. I understand that the federal government's taking a lot of that oxygen. Um, but I actually said to you before we started recording that one of the things I love about working in education policy is that because it's mostly a state and local matter, I feel like I live in the normal world right now. Um, and you too can live in the normal world and think about normal policy these days if what you're focused on is education. So when you get to a place where you have a better understanding of your state's education funding policy, um, and there's federal data that EdBuild uses to tell you how much money per student your school district has versus every other school district around you. If you see those inequities, go talk to your state legislatures about it. You know, go write letters, show up. I mean, this is something that you can really lobby about. Um, there are lots of advocacy organizations on the ground um, that are focused on more money for education. Um, you know, if you hear the League of Education Voters in different states, and that's a great cause and it's really important, but more money doesn't always go where it's needed. And so I would love it if people were mobilized around the question of we have whatever money we have, you know, tough times sometimes mean cuts across the board, but whatever money we have, is it going out fairly and equitably? And so try and learn about your policy and then talk to your local assemblyman or your state senator or state rep about it. I mean, this is, this is really an issue where people, um, state legislators know that parents and families are engaged in education, but they tend not to be as engaged in this particular issue. And I would really encourage people to get there. It's, it doesn't fire up the grassroots, but it requires the grassroots to get anything Absolutely. done. So Hava, thank you so much for joining me and for explaining this in such great detail. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a quick plug, not just for our website, but to follow EdBuild on Twitter. Um, so we're at EdBuild. And if you want to follow me specifically, I'm at Zahava EdBuild. Um, so thank you so much for a great conversation. I know there tends to be a lot of follow-up discussion uh, on Twitter with, uh, with the Pantsuit Politics account. And so I'd love to jump in on that after this episode goes live and, and be part of that conversation. Awesome. You heard her, everybody. Let's, let's discuss education policy. Thank you to Angie and Zahava for joining me today. I love being able to talk with smart, competent women about local politics. I feel like these are discussions that you don't get to hear everywhere, and it's just such a privilege for us to be able to uh, put this kind of content out there on our platform. You can find us on social media at Pantsuit Politics on Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politic on Twitter. 
Sarah will be back on Tuesday for another episode. Thank you to Nicholas and Chad and Tracy, Leslie, and Sabrina, our executive producers. Until next week, keep it nuanced, y'all.